So let me take you back to last week. We're going to build this whole class on the simple reality that truth was restored in the order of its importance. So not only is the Lord revealing truth, but he's making a commentary on that truth. If you want to know what's most important to God, if you want to know what's most essential to our salvation, ask where does it fall in the timetable of the restoration? Can you get to the celestial kingdom without knowing there's a celestial kingdom? Absolutely. Does the Book of Mormon talk about the celestial kingdom? The degrees of glory? Nope. Can you be saved if you follow what's taught in the Book of Mormon? Yep. So always bring, come back to what is the order in which truth was restored and what does that tell me about the most important truths? And I think if the foundation of the restoration has a central truth, then my testimony should have a central truth. Doesn't that follow? And I love Relief Society. I love missionary work. I love family home evening. I love the word of wisdom. But should any of those be the root of my testimony? No. The root of my testimony is what was restored first. So we, we spent last week, and we're going to do one more week on it, but what is the most important truth that we offer? If you were to say, of all the things in the restoration, what is the greatest truth? What is the foundation truth of the restoration? We know who God is. The nature and character of who He is. Which means of all the things to get right in my head, and in my heart, what's the most important thing to get right? Macy's going on a mission. What's the most important truth she needs to teach the world? Who is your heavenly father? What is the role that he and the savior play? How do you communicate with them? What do they want? What is their plan? That's the central truth. The nature and character of God. And I'm just going to put the Father and the Son together in that. Nothing else matters. That is the restoration. And again, I, I, I keep noticing a phenomenon that's happening. I know people who have left the church over doctrinal issues or the churches stand on this particular issue. They, they leave the church for things that are way down here. But then all of a sudden they realize, where are they going to go? How many of you know someone who's left the church for doctrinal reasons and has not joined another church? You notice that trend? And I suspect that it's because of who we know he is and they can't find this anywhere else. And hence the dilemma. I want to leave because of something way down here, but in leaving, I also have to let go of what we know about their character. And that leaves them, I can't go to any other church because I know who he is and I can't find that taught anywhere else. That's our central truth. So what I promised we'd do today is there are some core doctrines. There are some core texts in our doctrine outside of the scriptures. The greatest source of who they are is going to be the next circle. What, what book restores the knowledge of, the, of God, especially Christ? The Book of Mormon. 
The main point of the Book of Mormon is to bring us back to here. The point of priesthood is to come back here. The point of the restoration of the church is to come back here to the nature of God. And I don't want to step on the toes of the course, teachings and doctrines of the Book of Mormon, because that whole course, part of that whole course is to look at what do we know about Christ that's not taught anywhere else in Scripture? What does the Book of Mormon reveal about Christ? That's what that course will address. But I want to introduce you to some texts that we have in, our, in, our, in the church that formed a very core part of the early church and their beliefs. And as time has gone on, we've kind of brushed some of these, these sources aside, even though you've been taught them in other ways. So I want to make you familiar with two primary sources. The first one, in Kirtland, Ohio, Joseph gathered the leading brethren of the church, the leaders of the church, into a room, and he called that gathering the School of the Prophets. He gathered them into a school of the prophets, and he wanted to produce a curriculum so that they could follow a curriculum and study. That was their course of study when they came to school. And the curriculum for that school of the prophets was lectures on faith. Now, for many, many years, it appeared in the scriptures. These were printed. If you go back to a pre-1920 uh, triple, if you can find one, this was printed in the scriptures. We included them in the scriptures. In fact, doctrine and covenants, this was, I don't know if this was the doctrine or these, these were the, I think this was the doctrine and the sections were the covenants. But in 1920, when we redid the triple, the church decided this was never received by revelation, and so let's take it out of the scriptures. And yet, it continues to be a source of great understanding. So let's jump in. This is yours to keep if you want. If you're not, then turn it back in. Um, I'll use them from, from, for some future class. Um, there's a lot to be said here. I love lecture one and lecture two, but we're going to jump. Because, this, because our focus today is on the nature of God, let's turn to, to lecture three. All right, Carrie, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to text it to you. Thank you. All right, hold on one second. Did that come through? Okay, all right, you've got it. Let's go to lecture three. Everyone turn to lecture three, third lecture. Uh, come on. And you'll see why we study this in a class on the character and the nature of God. Let's go to verse... 3.2. Now, I've, this is my numbering. This is not the official numbering. Um, so these numbers are mine just so we can turn to them. This one is the lecture and then the paragraph of that lecture. So go to 3.2. 
Joseph wrote, let us here observe that three things are necessary in order that any rational and intelligent being may exercise faith in God unto life and salvation. So these are why they're in the lectures of, on faith, because you'll never have faith that leads to salvation without three things. First, the idea that he actually exists. Now that was lecture two. Lecture two talks about how do you come to know that God actually exists? We'll save that for another day. But most of you know he exists. Most of you who ha have had an interaction, I know he exists because he's manifested himself to me. So what's number two? And I think this is a lifetime study. You will never have faith that leads to salvation without a correct idea of his character, perfections, and attributes. If you have an incorrect understanding of God, what's it going to affect? Your faith. You cannot have faith that leads to salvation if you misunderstand the character of God. I'm going to show you a whole bunch of examples. But that is, to me, a lifetime pursuit. Do I have misunderstandings? Let me give you an example. The doctrine of the fall, the correct doctrine of the fall, says that this life must be what kind of existence? Were we intended to stay in the Garden of Eden and just eat beautiful fruit and have beautiful weather and our life was supposed to be easy? It, was that the intention of this life? We were here to have opposition. We were here to have half the day light and half the day darkness. Some of the months are warm and some of the months are cold. We have happiness and we are intended to have sadness. Now, if you don't understand that, what happens when bad things happen in your life? Who do you curse? See, you curse God because you misunderstand him. In fact, there's a precedent, there's a scriptural evidence. Let me pause in this one. You may remember this in your reading from 1 Nephi chapter 2. Why did Laman and Lemuel murmur? Tell me why they murmured. Why did they murmur? Because they knew not the dealings of that God who created them. If you do not have a correct understanding of God, it will affect your faith. Now, going back to this foundation, do you see that until you fix those misunderstandings, nothing else in this chain is going to matter? You won't need temple ordinances until you fix that. We have to understand who he is. What is his character, his attributes, and how does he exercise those in perfection? 
Now, the third one is an actual knowledge that the course of life you're pursuing is according to your will. Now, look what Joseph says. Without this, without an acquaintance of these three important facts, the faith of every rational being must be imperfect and unproductive. But with this understanding, it can become perfect and fruitful, abounding in righteousness unto the praise and glory of God. So guess what you're going to find in lecture three? Guess what lecture three is? Going back to this list, guess what lecture three is? The character of God. Guess what lecture four is? The attributes of God. Guess what lecture five is? The perfections of God. You see why I would bring this up to you? An entire lecture that the school of the prophets studied on what are the, char- what are the characteristics of God? What are the attributes of God? What are his perfections? So let's fill out the list. Ready, Abby? I feel like character and attributes are kind of similar. And I have struggled my whole life to identify what's the difference between a characteristic or part of his character and part of his attributes. And I don't know that it's very healthy to determine that. But Joseph gave us two lists and I'm happy to study them. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time deciding which list should this be on. Okay, so lecture three, starting in verse eight, he says, let's now talk about the character, the character of God, and then it summarizes them into six. There they are. Verses 13 through 18 are the character of God. And the way I distinguish, if it's worth anything, his character is who he is and his attributes are what he does. So who is he? What's his nature? Number one, what's the first one? That he was God before the world was created, the same God that he was after it was created. That's a very fancy way of saying he is the greatest of all that nothing is greater than your heavenly father. Now, let me tell you why that's a factor of faith. Let's list these and we'll come back to them. So greatest of all, number two, and allow me to get on my soapbox here and yell and scream this one, because this is where you're broken. I know it. I spent my whole career teaching you guys and your age group, and this is where you're broken. Tell me what is the heart and soul and the character of our Heavenly Father. He is merciful. And I know a lot of you don't believe that. That He is merciful. Number three, give me the third one. He doesn't change. What was important yesterday is important tomorrow. How many of you have ever gotten an answer to a prayer? And you wake up in the morning and what do you think? You got an answer yesterday. I got an answer and I knew what came from God and I'm positive. How about this one? Okay, I've been praying for forgiveness of sins. I've been pleading God for a forgiveness of sins and I got an answer that my sins are forgiven. And I know it came from God. And I wake up tomorrow and tell me what I do. Tell me what you do. Was that really from God? 
as if what? That today he did what? He changed his mind. He doesn't change. He doesn't change. What was important yesterday is important today. He doesn't change. Does not change. Four, cannot lie. Cannot. Therefore, if he says, Bryce, you're forgiven, what does that mean? You're forgiven. But you don't believe that. You start second guessing it. If he says Jesus came to save sinners, what does that mean? He came to save sinners. He doesn't lie. He doesn't lie to you. He doesn't lie in the scriptures. He doesn't lie in your patriarchal blessing. He cannot lie. Number five. He does not have favorites. He does not like anyone more than anyone else. And if you think he does, you misunderstand God. If you think you're his favorite and he likes you more than someone else, you misunderstand God. If you think someone else is his favorite and you're not, you misunderstand God. And you have an incorrect understanding of who he is. He has no favorites. And number six, he is the embodiment of love. Now, let's just take a few minutes with that list. Let me just kind of introduce the idea where we deviate and we believe a falsehood. Let's start with the first one. I just want to read from Lectures on Faith each time. Okay. If I don't see, if I don't believe that God is the greatest of all, what's the description? Fear, I would fear that there should be greater than he who would thwart his plans, and he, like the gods of the heathens, would be unable to fulfill his promises. But seeing he is God over all, from everlasting to everlasting, the creator and upholder of all things, no such fear can exist in the minds of those who put their trust in him. So that in this respect, their faith can be without wavering. Now, let me tell you how I'm, I perceive that most Latter-day Saints are broken here. Who is greater, God or your problems? It's silly when I ask it that way, isn't it? Because what's the answer? God. But what happens when you're in the middle of the problem? What do you have a tendency to feel? Why are you smiling, Janae? Why do we, what do we feel in that moment when the problem is surfacing? Hopeless and helpless. And yet, what should we know? What should we trust beyond a doubt? That my Heavenly Father is bigger than all of this. He is bigger than every problem you face. He is bigger than your sins. He's bigger than your weaknesses. He is bigger than your debt. He is bigger than your addiction. He is bigger than your weaknesses. He is greatest of all. And if you can hold on to that, you know there's always hope. There's always hope. 
because he's the greatest of all. Let me give you an example. When we read the story of David and Goliath, so here's David, here's Goliath. If David looks at Goliath, what's he going to feel? I can't do this. But here's God. If David looks at God, what is he going to feel about Goliath? Now, do you see the symbolism? If I focus on my problems, my limitations, how broken I am, it gets overwhelming. And there's your faith, has a, takes a hit. But if you hold on to the fact that nothing can stop God from saving me, nothing can stop God from saving me, not even my sins, nothing can stop God from saving me, there's hope, right? Do you see why that's important? To understand that he is the greatest of all. Now, as you read this, this last couple of weeks in Come Follow Me, when Laban couldn't, no, when Laman couldn't get the plates from Laban, what was his conclusion? When they tried their gold and their silver, and it's two times, we're two strikes, and we haven't been able to get these plates, what was Laman's conclusion after two strikes? What's his conclusion? We can't do this. We can't do this. We can't get these plates. What was Nephi's conclusion? Now, tell me what Laban was looking at. Laman. Laman was looking at Laban and saying, I can't do this. Nephi looked at God and said what? Someone read it. What was Nephi's conclusion looking here instead of here? Abby, read that. Let us go up again unto Jerusalem, and let us be faithful in keeping, his command, keeping the commandments of the Lord. For behold, he is mightier than all the earth. Then why not mightier than Laban and his fifty, or even his tens of thousands? In other words, look how great he is. I'm not worried about him even though I have no idea how to get these plates. Now, do you do that? Because every one of us has a Goliath that seems overwhelming. I don't know how I can do this. I don't know how I can survive. Do you know what houses cost in Salt Lake right now? How in the world are you ever going to buy a house for your family? It's easy to get a little overwhelmed because you're looking at what? Look at this. And who's greater than the housing problem in the Salt Lake Valley? Who's greater than your finances? He is. You get that? Do you see how that's fundamental to faith? If you are broken in that sense, it's going to affect your faith. So number one, he is greatest of all. He's greater than all of my problems. 
He is greater than my challenges, my sins, my imperfections. He is greater. He can save me. Nothing can stop God from saving me, and I need to stop doubting. There's faith. All right, number two. And I love the description here. And forgive me. You need to listen. I need to listen. You and I are broken here. And this describes how we're broken. Ready? Unless he was merciful and gracious, slow to anger, long-suffering, and full of goodness. Such is the weakness of human nature and so great the frailties and imperfections of men that unless they believed that these excellencies existed in the divine character, the faith necessary to, for salvation could not exist. Why? For doubt would take the place of faith, and those who know their weakness and liability to sin would be in constant doubt of salvation, were it not for the idea which they have of the excellency of the character of God. Now, don't raise your hand, but how many of you were just described? I am in constant doubt of salvation because I know my weaknesses and my liability to sin. And I'm constantly doubting that I'm going to be saved. Because you don't see his character. Do you know what heals that? And understanding, now this is one of the most beautiful descriptions you'll ever find, which is why I want to make it, bring it to your attention. He is slow to anger and long-suffering. He is of a forgiving disposition. And he does forgive iniquity, transgression and sin. And if we believe this, the idea of these facts does away doubt and makes faith exceedingly strong. Let me read it again. Your Heavenly Father and your Savior are slow to anger. They are long-suffering and they are of a forgiving disposition. It is natural for them. It is easy for them. They are of a forgiving disposition. And they do forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. When, oh when, are you going to start believing that about Heavenly Father? Now, there are some people that go too far. Eat, drink, and be merry. Nevertheless, just, you know, we'll sin because God will slap us on the wrist and then we'll be saved. You can take that too far, but not very many of you do. Most of us err on what side? Being too hard on ourselves and not thinking we're enough and beating ourselves up because I don't think I'm good enough to be saved. What does that tell you you believe about the nature of God? 
You, you have to be really, really good for him to save you. He is of a forgiving disposition. He is slow to anger, quick to forgive. Do you see how we're broken? Now, I want to get to the rest. We gotta, we're not even going to get to the other one. I'm sorry. But I want to just mention, you've got to see that he doesn't change he doesn't lie. He doesn't have favorites. That's a big one. He doesn't have favorites. So many people think, well, so-and-so, goody-goody over there. He's God's favorite, but not me. He does not have favorites. He doesn't. He doesn't want to save goody-goody over there more than he wants to save you. He doesn't have favorites. But I want to get to his attributes. We've got to spend a little time in his attributes. I will just leave you the King Follett discourse as homework because we need to move on. But let's get to his attributes. Go to chapter four, lecture four. I wanna point out what this says about his character. In verse one of lecture four, without the correct ideas of his character, the minds of men could not have sufficient power with God to the exercise of faith necessary to the enjoyment of eternal life. Oh. If I could shout that from the rooftops, if you misunderstand his character, you lack power with God to be saved. Spend your life studying his character. Know who your father is. All right, now let's get to, let's get to his attributes. Starting in verse four, here are his attributes, okay? List them for me. Number one, Heavenly Father knows all things. He has all knowledge. He knows everything about you. Jesus said that the hairs on your head are numbered. He knows everything and all things. He has all knowledge. Now, we have to understand that he balances that with what's number two. He has all power. Now, may I, the reason I want to put these up in pairs is because there is a balance there. There is a balance between what he knows and what he does. Could he, does he have power to solve every problem you have? Does he have power to take all your pain away? He could say the word and John jumps out of that wheelchair. He could say the word and your every problem you have is gone, right? Do you believe that? So why doesn't he? Why is John in a wheelchair? Because he balances what he, his power with what? With what he knows is best. And there's the perfection of God. The perfection of God is that he has power to solve every problem, but he knows what problems to solve and what problems not to solve. He knows what we need to struggle with. He has know how to strengthen a muscle. There's only one way to build a muscle. What is it? 
How do you build any muscle? How do you build a muscle? You tear it. This is the only way to build a muscle. You tear it so that it rebuilds bigger and stronger. So what if you never tear a muscle? You never build it. Does he know that? Does he know what you need in this life? Now, in the allegory of the tame and the wild olive tree, there's this beautiful little allegory. It applies to all of us and each of us. In Jacob chapter 5, we are like a tree. We collectively and I individually am like this tree. Now, there comes a point where the Lord asks an intriguing question. Let's go to verse let me do this version because I've got it labeled in a different color. All right, Jacob 5, he asks an incredible question. Verse 47, what's the question? Macy, what's the question? What could I have done more? For this vineyard. What could I have done more? And he answers it. Verse 49, what could I have done more? Ready for his answer? He answers it here. Back in 47. What could I have done more? Have I slackened my hand that I haven't nourished it? No, I have. I've digged about it. I've pruned it. I've dunged it. I've stretched forth my hand. What's the answer? Did he forget to do something that would have saved the vineyard? No. Which means your life is your best chance at salvation. If someone else's life would have been better for you, what would he have done? He would have given it to you. To the question, what could I have done more to save you? The answer is always what? You couldn't have done anything more. What you did was the perfect thing to do. Now that is a hard truth to have faith in. But you have to understand that not only does he have these attributes, but his perfection is in balancing them. He has power to solve every problem, but he doesn't because he knows. He knows what you need. And there's our faith. Our faith is that someone else got healed and I didn't. Why? If he doesn't have favorites, why did someone else get healed and I didn't? What must the answer be? He knows. He knows what I need. He knows what they need. He knows when I need it. He knows how much I need and he doesn't go too far. Let me show you a fascinating verse. You tell me what this verse says to you. What does this verse suggest to you in the challenges that you face in your life? 
when Joseph Smith was in Liberty Jail, Heavenly Father said this to him. Tell me what that sentence says to you. Hold on thy way. The priesthood shall remain with thee for what? Their bounds are set. They cannot pass. Tell me what that says to you. Macy, what does that say to you? Nothing happens to you that what? Is out of the box he knows is right for you. Nothing happens that is out of the box. There's his knowledge and his power. See that balance? Now, going back to lectures on faith, what's attribute three and five? Watch the other balance. What's three and what's five? What are his other balances? Three is? Justice and mercy. Justice and mercy. Now, the reason he can be perfect in that is he knows how to do what? He knows how to judge. He knows how to judge perfectly. He knows how to judge. And because his judgment, if that's his attribute, and his perfection is that he does it perfectly, then this balance is going to be what? Perfect as well. Everyone, I love this verse. Mosiah chapter 16, verse 1, what did Abinadi testify to the priests of Noah? Every single one of us will someday say what? Look at verse 1. What will everyone confess? Every, everyone, everyone, every godless person who's profaned his name, every righteous person, everyone will look back on their whole life and say what? The judgment of God was right. You don't have to worry about him messing up your judgment. You ever had a teacher that grades wrong? And every time you took a test, what are you thinking the whole time? What am I going to get on this test? Because you have no faith in how they're going to judge you. But God is a perfect judge. Now, if we had more time, we'd go through the scriptures, and I'd love to point out how God judges. Let me just do one really, really quick one. Turn with me to John chapter 8, to the woman taken in adultery. I want to point out a reality John chapter 8, and if you stick around to the next class, we'll talk about this in great depth. What's John 8? Woman taken in adultery, right? An adulterous woman standing in front of Jesus. Boy, what are we going to get? 
What are we going to get with an adulterous woman standing in front of Jesus? Now, if it were the church, what would she get? If it was your ward, what would she get? Now, here's an adulterous woman standing in front of Jesus. Now, their whole reason is they want, they want to trap. This has nothing to do with the woman. They want to trap Jesus. But he says something fascinating. They want Jesus to condemn him. And he says what? He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Did someone there qualify to throw a stone? Yes. Was there someone who passed that test and could have thrown a stone? Who was it? The one person who didn't. Now tell me about his character. Going back to this one, tell me about his character. He doesn't throw stones, but he could. He's the one person that qualifies to throw a stone. You think he's thrown. You think he is. You're scared of him because he knows everything about you and you expect condemnation from him. But he is the one person who qualifies to throw a stone and doesn't. Instead, what happens? Everyone leaves because they're condemned except for the woman. Jesus looks up and says, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man. Tell me what Jesus says. Neither do I condemn thee. But what does this mean? Do I condone what you've done? Did she know it? Did she know she needs to improve? But what doesn't she feel? Now that is one of the great truths about who he is. You will walk away. Now there's a great footnote. I'm almost done. There's a great footnote. Tell me how she walked away. An adulterous woman who just violated the law of chastity walked away what? Does she know she needs to change? Is she inspired to change? Was she chewed out, lectured, or condemned in any way? Tell me about his judgment. Tell me about God's judgment. You might think you're going to get condemnation and guilt. But he knows how to judge without any condemnation. And the more you can trust that, the more faith you'll have in him. Now, we have only scratched the surface, but do you see why I recommend these? Do you see the depth that's here? And then you go to the scriptures and you spend your whole life studying who he is and what kind of being he is. Because odds are, it's safe for me to say, you have some broken ideas here. And the more you fix them, the more faith you'll have. Now, if you want, you may take a copy of the King Follows. Actually, you know what? I'll hand these out next week because they're not collated. I will collate them and I'll bind them. I'll bind them in, in, in I'll, I had a printing problem, so I had to scratch it. I noticed some errors. I can't hand out errors. So I'll bind this. We'll hand it out. But King Follett Discourse is where did God come from?
How did he become God? And what does that mean about you and I? And that's a pretty heavy doctrine, but we won't have time for it. So we need to move on to our next circle. So what happened next? First vision, 1820, what's the next thing that happens? Moroni comes and introduces the Book of Mormon. That's number two. We'll do that next week. Bear you my testimony that the foundation of your faith ought to match the foundation of this restoration. And that is we know who we worship. And we are striving to have a correct understanding of who he is and what he does. Everything else that's coming is secondary to understanding who he is. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.